now we will have our final message of this beautiful Sabbath day by Curtis Whiteley, entitled Persevering Hope, a Community of Conviction. Thank you, Owen. Good afternoon. Wonderful to be with everyone here on this uh, Sabbath right after the Days of Unleavened Bread. And so as Owen just read, uh, the title of the message today is Persevering Hope, a Community of Conviction. And so it's kind of a long title. Uh, This is just a a new series that I'm starting in the epistle, Paul's epistle to the uh, uh, Thessalonians, his first one. And so... I haven't quite figured out how many messages it's going to be, somewhere around maybe eight. And so I decided this uh, series actually quite a while back, and I was interested in this epistle for several reasons. One of them, I'll admit, because it was a shorter epistle, and I felt like I could get through it within a year. And uh, I remember when I first came into the faith, uh, 1 Thessalonians was an epistle of Paul that uh, really kind of, you know, struck home for me in a lot of ways. And so, in order to start this uh, series, I want to kind of just explain a little bit of it, a little bit of how I came up with the title, Persevering Hope, because that's the name of this series, Persevering Hope. Now, we all know what it means to persevere, right? What does it mean to persevere? It's something really important. Basically, it means endurance, that we have the perseverance, the endurance to deal with things that come in life. And as Christians, we know that we're going to be faced, as we already are faced with, many things. Sometimes it's persecution. Sometimes it's trials in the form of you know, sickness, in the form of relationship issues in the form of employment issues. You na- I mean, you can think of it, you name it. I mean, there's so many things that we in this Christian walk, in this journey can go through. And so, as I was reading 1 Thessalonians and I was studying it, one of the primary themes of this epistle was steadfast hope. That's what the Christian message is all about. Steadfast hope. A hope and a future. Hope in the plan that God has in store for us. You know, we just went through the days of unleavened bread, and it's hard not to hearken back to those days because it's the beginning of God's plan for us, or it points to it. Now, we understand that these are, just, these are days that we keep year in, year out, because it's something that's really important to God to remind us continually what He has done for us through His Son, Jesus Christ. And so there's many themes that we're going to look at as we go through this series. But one of the themes, and it links back to that study that we did a year ago when we did the Path to Pentecost, and that is the idea of hope. The idea of hope. The endurance. The perseverance. It's a very important aspect in humans. You know, I'm in education for a living, and in educational circles, we call this grit. Perseverance, grit. We talk, there's, there's many studies that have been done that shown how important it is for individuals, for developing children to be able to fail at something but continue to persevere, to continue to try again, to have troubles, to have stumbling blocks come their way, and to be able to overcome those stumbling blocks. And we see that that's a pattern that's shown in research when it comes to education, when it comes to the development of early chi- children, In a lot of ways, we see that that's the biblical pattern itself as well. You know, God created us. He created us as humans. He understands not just how we physically develop, but He understands how we mentally, socially, emotionally develop. And spiritually, as Christians, it's the same way. Jesus Christ gave us a path. He gave us a cross to bear after Him. And in this walk and in this journey... We have to persevere because the terrain is not always smooth. It's not always flat. Sometimes it's uphill. Sometimes it's on sand. Sometimes it's on rocks. And so in this Christian walk, we have to have perseverance. And that's what leads us to our hope. The hope that we have in us. 
That's so very important. Specifically, not just for this journey, but also for our growth as Christians. And so just to kind of give us a little background about 1 Thessalonians. It's an epistle, it's a letter. Epistle is kind of a word that we're accustomed to using, but in our modern language, we would consider it a letter. And it's really interesting, isn't it, that a large portion of the New Testament is letters from Paul, from James, from Peter, from John, Jude, to other people, to other communities, to other churches. We're intercepting people's mail. And we're learning a little bit about what's going on in those people's lives, in those communities' lives, in those churches' lives. And we don't know everything. Sometimes we don't have all of the information that we need as far as knowing every single thing that was going on. But what we do know is, is that these letters that have been given to us, that have been placed and canonized in what we call the New Testament, that they're not just for those individuals or those communities of faith or those churches that were written, them, written to them in the first century, but they're also for me and you today. For us to glean principles from. And 1 Thessalonians, this is a young church. This isn't a church that's been in the faith for a long time. This is a church that just got started. And the background for this is in Acts, the 17th chapter. I'm just going to turn there real quick because I want us to read this. We all know that Paul... He's a man on a mission. He's going around all over the ancient Near East. He's going over all over what we call modern day Turkey, which is Asia Minor. He's going into Greece. He's going all the way to Rome eventually. And he's going from place to place to place, and he's preaching this Jesus. And he goes into the synagogue to the Jews first, and he starts preaching this Jesus, and Jesus raised, and how Jesus was the fulfillment of... What they read every Sabbath in the synagogue, the scriptures. And in Acts the 17th chapter, we read, verse 1, Now when they had passed through Amphilus and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews, as was Paul's custom, just to kind of insert that. Then, verse 2, then Paul, as his custom was, went in to them, and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures explaining and demonstrating that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I preach to you, is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded, and a great multitude of the devout Greeks, and not a few of the leading women, joined Paul and Silas. But the Jews, who were not persuaded, becoming envious, took some of the evil men from the marketplace, and gathering a mob, set all the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason and sought to bring them out to the people. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brethren to the rulers of the city, crying out, These who have turned the world upside down have come here too. Jason has harbored them, and these are all acting contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And they troubled the crowd. And the rulers of the city, when they heard these things, so when they had taken security from Jason, and the rest, they let them go. Then the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. So here we see the opening, the introduction to the Thessalonican people. And so what we know from the first letter of Thessalonians, we're going to watch a video in just a, just a minute or so, and I'm going to explain a little bit about this video. Uh, what we know is that this might have been one of Paul's earliest letters that he ever wrote that we know of as far as the, one in, the ones included in the New Testament. This might have been his earliest letter, somewhere around late 50 A.D. or early 51 A.D., somewhere around there. And it wasn't real long after Paul leaves Thessalonica, and he goes to eventually, he'll go to Berea, then he goes to Athens, and from Athens, he's worried about this, these Thessalonian believers that he, that he planted, this church that he planted, this community that he planted. And he sends Timothy from Athens to Thessalonica to find out what had happened to him. I mean, I can think, and I think you can too, you can imagine what was going on in Paul's mind. He saw the persecution that he endured because of preaching Jesus in Thessalonica. And so he's thrown out of the city, him and Silas, 
And in his mind, because he has a deep, genuine love for the people that he establishes in the faith, He's worried and he's concerned. All of them, Silas, Timothy, and Paul. And we're going to get to this. It's the epistle of Paul. But in some ways we could say it's the epistle of Paul, T- Timothy, and Silas. Because all of them are together in writing this. Paul includes all of them. And so Paul sends Timothy to Athens, or from Athens to Thessalonica, Thessalonica to get a report of how things were going. And he'll meet, he'll meet Silas and Paul back in Corinth, eventually where Paul will write this first letter to the Thessalonican church. And so to give us an introduction, instead of going through all the background, all the different things, I'm going to let us watch this video that was produced by what's known as the Bible Project. This is a wonderful organization. Uh, That's, of course, my opinion. Uh, They create uh, graphic videos, sketches, and explain each Bible, each book of the Bible. And they do it in in, in giving you explanation of uh, of the the, the background information of each book, what the theme of each book is, when it was written, what some of the circumstances and themes were of each book. And it's, it's, it's basically an organization that's just trying to promote biblical literacy, Christian biblical literacy, and to get the word out, and to, to reach an audience, a 21st century audience. And so we're going to watch this little video that's over 1 Thessalonians, the first, chat, the, uh, the first book of Thessalonians. Paul's first letter to the Thessalonians. This is most likely the earliest letter that we have from Paul. And the backstory for it is found in the book of Acts. It's where Paul and his co-worker Silas went to the ancient Greek city of Thessalonica. And after just one month of telling people the good news about Jesus, a large number of Jewish and Greek people gave their allegiance to Jesus and they formed the first church community there. But trouble was brewing. Paul's announcement of the risen Jesus as the true Lord of the world, it led to suspicion. So the Christians in Thessalonica were eventually accused of defying Caesar, the Roman emperor, when they said that there is another king, Jesus. And this led to a persecution that got so intense, Paul and Silas actually had to flee from the city. And this was painful for them because they loved the people there so much. And so this letter is Paul's attempt to reconnect with the Christians in Thessalonica after he got a report from Timothy that they were doing more than okay, they were flourishing despite this intense persecution. He designed the letter to have two main movements. First is a celebration of their faithfulness to Jesus, and then he challenges them to keep growing as followers of Jesus. And then these two movements are surrounded by three prayers. The letter opens with a thanksgiving prayer. The two movements are linked together by a transitional prayer. And then the whole thing is concluded with a final prayer. It's a beautiful design. Paul opens by giving thanks and celebrating the Thessalonians' faith, their love for others, and their hope in Jesus despite persecution. He goes on to retell the story of their conversion, how they used to be idolatrous polytheists, and they were living in a culture where all of life was permeated by institutions and practices that honored the Greek and Roman gods. And Paul talks about how they turned away from those idols to serve the living and true God, and that they're now waiting for the coming of God's Son from heaven. So in a city like Thessalonica, transferring your allegiance to the creator God of Israel and to King Jesus, this came at a cost. Isolation from your neighbors, hostility from your family. But for the Thessalonians, the overwhelming love of Jesus who died for them and the hope of his return, it made it all worth it. Paul then retells the story of his mission in Thessalonica and of the dear friendships he formed with the people. He uses really intimate metaphors here. They treated him like their child, and he became like their mother and like their father. He says, we were happy to share with you not only the good news from God, but our very selves, because we came to dearly love you. Paul reminds us here that the essence of Christian leadership is not about power and having influence. It's about healthy relationships and humble, loving service. He reminds them that he never asked for money. He simply came to love and serve them in the name of Jesus. And so Paul moves on to reflect on their common persecution. Just like Jesus was rejected and killed by his own people, so now Paul is persecuted by his fellow Jews, and the Thessalonians are facing hostility from their Greek neighbors. And Paul draws a strange comfort from knowing that together their sufferings are a way of participating in the story of Jesus' own life and death. 
Paul then shares about the anguish he experienced when he heard of the hardships the Thessalonians had after he and Silas fled. So he sent Timothy to support them and see how they were doing. And to his joy, Timothy discovered that they were going strong. They were faithful to Jesus. They were full of love for God and their neighbors. And they longed to see Paul as much as he longed to see them. And so Paul concludes with a prayer for endurance. And what's cool is that he introduces here the topics he's going to address in the letter's second half. He prays that God will grow their capacity to love, that he'll strengthen their commitment to holiness as they fix their hope on the return of King Jesus. So he opens the letter's second movement by challenging them to a life that's consistent with the teachings of Jesus. So this means, first of all, a serious commitment to holiness and sexual purity. In contrast to the promiscuous, sexually destructive culture around them, they are to follow Jesus' teaching about experiencing the beauty and the power of sex within the haven of a committed marriage covenant relationship. God takes sexual misbehavior seriously, Paul says. It dishonors and destroys people and their dignity. Following Jesus also means a commitment to loving and serving others. So Paul instructs them that Christians should be known in the city as reliable people who work really hard, not just to make money, but so that they can have resources to provide for themselves and to generously share with people who are in need. After this, Paul addresses a number of questions the Thessalonians had raised about the future hope of Jesus' return. So some Christians in the church had recently died, most likely killed as martyrs, and their friends and family are wondering about their fate when Jesus returns. And so Paul makes it clear that despite their grief and loss, not even death can separate Christians from the love of Jesus. When he returns as king, he will call both the living and the dead to himself. And Paul uses a really cool image here. He uses language that would normally describe how a city subject to the Roman Caesar would send out a delegation to welcome or meet his arrival. Paul then applies this imagery to the arrival of King Jesus. He too will be greeted by a delegation of his people who will go to meet the Lord in the air as they welcome and escort him back to this world where he'll establish his kingdom of justice and peace. Paul then wants the Thessalonians to see how this hope should motivate faithfulness to Jesus. So he pokes fun at the famous Roman propaganda that it's Caesar who brings peace and security. Of course, Rome's peace came through violence, through enslaving their enemies and military occupation. And Paul warns that Jesus will return as king one day and confront this kind of injustice. Followers of King Jesus should live in the present as if that future day is already here. Despite the nighttime of human evil around them, they should stay sober and awake as the light of God's kingdom dawns here on earth as it is in heaven. Paul closes all of these exhortations like he began with a hopeful prayer, that God would permeate their lives with his holiness, that he would set them apart to be completely devoted and blameless until the return of King Jesus. First Thessalonians reminds us that from the very beginning, following Jesus as king has produced a truly countercultural or holy way of life. And this will sometimes generate suspicion and conflict among our neighbors. But the response of Jesus' followers to such hostility should always be love, meeting opposition with grace and generosity. And this way of life, it's motivated by hope in the coming kingdom of Jesus that has already begun in his resurrection from the dead. And so holiness, love, and future hope, that's what First Thessalonians is all about. All right, so that was just kind of a quick video, kind of gave you an overview, because this is, in some ways, the introduction, obviously, uh, to this series. And so, if you can think back to your English classes, uh, back in school when you were young, uh, if you had an English teacher like me, uh, they would teach us how to write, uh, and they would always teach us to write where we had an introduction. Uh, and then in the introduction, you would kind of give a preview of what you're getting ready to talk about. And in a lot of ways, Paul kind of follows this. This first chapter of 1 Thessalonians, it's kind of interesting because these themes, they're going to come back. Paul's kind of giving like an overview of what he's getting ready to talk about before he talks about it. And so we're just going to read the first 10 verses here. 
to give us a little context. And I'm going to give us a few points over this first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. So if you go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, and verse 1, we read, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Silvanius also is, is Silas's name. To the church of the Thessalonians, and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We give thanks to God always for you all, making mention of you in our prayers, remembering without ceasing your work of faith, labor of love, and patience of hope and our Lord Jesus Christ in the sight of our God and Father. Knowing, beloved brethren, your election by God, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit, and in much assurance, as you know what kind of men we were among you for your sake. And you became followers of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much affliction, with joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became examples to all in Macedonia and Achaia who believed. For from you the word of the Lord has sounded forth, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone out, so that we do not need to say anything. For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. And so that's, there's a lot there. There's a lot of ideas that Paul is unpacking here just in this first chapter. And so I have three main points for us today. One of the things that I was doing whenever I was creating this was trying to figure out a way to be concise but also be faithful to what Paul's trying to say. And I think that this is a struggle for all of us when we study, we study the scriptures. I was just laughing with Ron Kolb earlier before church started, and that is about Paul. And we all know that Paul's one of the pioneers of the New Testament. He's wrote, written, wrote more of the New Testament than any other author. But Paul has a heavy pen. And I think that you understand what I mean. He has a lot of ideas to unpack. He's a very, very deep thinker. And we understand he was very gifted. And so when I was coming up with these points, one of the things I came across was the NIV application commentary who had a series of questions based upon this first chapter. And so what I did was I took a few of those questions and I kind of modified them and I just made them imperatives. And I did that because it's kind of an introductory chapter. It's going to be covering a lot of these same aspects a little later on. And so I have three imperatives, three things that I want us to glean from this first study here on 1 Thessalonians. And with those three themes, with those three main ideas, I want to ask a question. How do we live a life of conviction in Christ? This is a very convicted community. They're young, but they're very convicted. Paul was excited when he heard about the report of these young believers and the report was about their conviction. So I have three points for us to consider today. Number one, be a community that is committed to Christ. We're going to get into this. It's not just going to be, you know, obviously real shallow, like, kind of like that statement is as far as just obviously that's, that's something that all of us could probably agree with, you know, be a community that's committed to Christ. But what does that mean? And we're going to get into that. We're going to glean some things I think that we can see from this first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Secondly, be a community empowered by the Holy Spirit. How do we do that? And third, be a community that is di differentiated from other religions. And these are just some of the three main things that Paul talks about in this first letter, in this first chapter of 1 Thessalonians. And so, the first one, let's go back to it. Be a community that is committed to Christ. One of the first things that we see when we read this letter, as every other letter in Paul's corpus of the New Testament, all the different letters that we see in the New Testament, except Galatians, Galatians is the only one that doesn't have a short little prayer of thanksgiving. 
So we ask the question, what is a way that we can be a community that is committed to Christ? I think that when we read 1 Thessalonians, the first chapter, one of those things that we can do is be a community of prayer. A community of thankfulness. And not just a community of prayer and thankfulness, but a prayer of genuine prayer and thankfulness. So as I mentioned, this is a model that Paul gives us. The first thing he does is he thanks God for these Thessalonians believe, Thessalonian believers. He thanks God for them. And it's interesting because I was thinking about this, and I was just trying to ask the question in my own head, how much do I really thank God? Yeah, we come to church. We give opening and closing prayers. We thank God. But in our private lives, the way we live them, how, how thankful really are we to God? Let's just think about this and how thankful we are just in normal, subtle things in life. Think about this. Let's, let's think about just going to the grocery store. Obviously, this is a hypothetical situation. I kind of just put it together because I've been in similar situations. Let's just think about how thankful we are just to people for little things, or at least we say so. Say you drive to the grocery store, you park, right? You get out of your car. And what's one of the first things you have to do when you go into the store? Usually you have to cross the street. What I mean is cross the, the roadway to get into the store. And so you get out of your car, you start walking towards the store, towards the store and there's a car and the car stops and waves you by what do you do you give him a wave of thankfulness right you go up to the door and someone's going in right before you're getting ready to go into the to the store they hold the door open for you what do you do you say thank you I appreciate that you're in there you're looking for something and you can't find it you go to an employee or someone who works there and you ask them, hey, I cannot find this. Can you help me? And they say, aisle two. What do you do? Again, you say, thank you. You go up to the cash register, and there's someone that has all this stuff right in front of you. You only have one thing. They look at you, and they say, hey, why don't you go ahead? I'm not quite done yet. You only have one thing, and I have a bunch. You say, thank you so much. I really appreciate that. The, cash the, the cashier rings up your order, rings up what you're buying, puts it in a bag for you, says, have, have a nice day. You say, again. Thank you. You walk out the door. Oh, someone else again is walking out right before you're walking out. Holds the door open for you. You walk out the door and you say, thank you, sir, or thank you, ma'am. You have to cross the street again to get in your car. Another car's coming by. They stop. They let you go by. You give them another wave of thanks. Now, what am I getting at here? It's kind of a strange story, right? What I'm getting at is just think about in your normal lives, and we, uh, we all should be thankful to people, but think about how easy it is for, to say thank you to people for ordinary little subtle things in life. Someone taking a split second to open a door for you. Someone taking a second just to let you cross the street before they drive through. Think about that. Those are good things. In no way, shape, or form am I saying that we shouldn't do that. We should be very, you know, very kind. That's one of the fruits of the Spirit. But as I was looking at this, and I was thinking about, you know, how much do we pray to God? And how thankful are we to Him? I was thinking to myself, wow, it's really easy for me to be thankful to people that do little, subtle, ordinary things in everyday life. But what about God that's done all of these big things for us? Do we truly, genuinely show thankfulness to Him through our words and our prayers? through our actions, through our genuine feelings in our heart, do we really thank God on the same level that we should when we compare the big things that he does for us? So we want to be a community that's committed to Christ. We have to be a community that's committed to prayer and thankfulness. A community that's prayer and thankfulness. You know, another thing I was thinking about in our prayer and in our thankfulness was the idea of genuine concern. You know, at first glance, we, we read Paul, and sometimes we see in every letter that he's thankful to God, and every letter that he's got a little prayer for the, the community that he's writing to. And I started thinking to myself, how, how are we in life sometimes? We, we say things, and it's almost like robotic, right? It's kind of like going through the motions. And I think we all fall into this sometimes. You know, someone says something to you, you know, how are you doing? You're like, I'm, I'm good, I'm really good. I mean, are you really good? 
How have things been? Oh, things are great. Are they really great? I mean, sometimes we're, we're private, right? And we, someone asks us that, and it's just kind of a go-through-the-motion robotic response is to say, yeah, I'm doing good. How about when we say things to other people? Hey, I hope you're doing good. Do you really? I'm not saying that we don't hope people are doing good, but are we genuinely really thinking, man, I hope things are going good for them. I hope that they're being blessed. I care for them. I'm concerned for them. I'm concerned for the things that are going on in their life. Think about that just with us here as a church body, as, a, as part of Christ's body. Genuine concern. Do we have genuine concern for people, for each other? We're part of this body of Christ, right? That's what we are. And so some people could say, you know what, Paul? Isn't that just kind of like, you know, just a custom? Oh, this Thanksgiving. And it was a custom. Writing a letter, you would have a Thanksgiving. You would try to create goodwill between you and the person you were writing to. But it was more than just a custom. It was more than just a style of writing a letter for Paul. And we see this as we will eventually read in this letter that Paul, as was shown in the video, he uses familial language. Familial language. We'll see in chapter 2 that Paul talks about, but we, and this is verse 7, but we were gentle among you just as a nursing mother cherishes her own children. So we see that Paul's backing up this, these genuine feelings. He also says in verse 11 of chapter 2, the same things. Mothers, uh, uh, something very similar uh, as far as when it comes to parental language. And so we see that Paul's backing up. Yes, I genuinely do care for you because I have love for you similar to a father has love for his children and a mother has love for his children. Of course, Paul is not saying that I'm the father or I'm their parent in the sense of, you know, you need to honor me. He's saying that God has given me a mission to plant the gospel in places that I go and this is one of the places that I planted the gospel and I care deeply for that gospel to take root and to flourish, and for the people in it. He was genuine. He was genuine. This is what motivated Paul, Silas, and Timothy to be genuinely concerned for these individuals. The familial bond that he had made with them. All of us here have that familial bond. We are a family. We talk all the time about the family of God, right? And it's true, and that's exactly what the scriptures present to us. Those who are in Christ's body are a part of God's family. All of us. Just like 1 Corinthians, the 12th chapter, verse 26 says, And if one member is honored, all the members, or one member is, uh, suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. So this created an intense longing the Apostle Paul, for Silas, for Timothy, for this community here at Thessalonica. Another thing that we can get from this idea of prayer is the idea of how Paul prays. Paul gives basically the Christ model. He follows the Christ model. Let's think about this. Back in the day, in, in these days, typical prayers would include something along the lines of opening up to the deity, talking to them, and laying out all of the things that they had done. And the reason was because that person was trying to get something from that deity. It was, hey, look at the merits. You know, I've basically done these things. You should do this for me. And we see that Jesus even talks about this, right? He talks all the time about how people will do things. And they'll look at God almost like God owes them something. He'll, you know, we see that in Luke, the 18th chapter, verse 12, that Jesus mentions stuff like, you know, I, I pray, you know, five times a day, and I fast twice a week. You know, thank you that I'm not like this heathen right here. Look what I did. But Paul's letter here in his prayer, he gives us a model just like Jesus. Number one, he starts out by thanking God. 
He starts out by acknowledging what God has done, not what he's done, not what we as individual humans have done. And then he also goes into thinking about other people. He thanks God first and then prays for others. And that's similar to the model that Jesus showed us just a few, just over a week ago on Passover night, as our custom is here at the Tulsa Church of God. We read through those later parts of John. And we see that Jesus, what does he do in the midst of this anxiety? In the midst of these, this, the trials that are getting ready to come upon him. And foreknowing that he's getting ready to endure one of the worst things that any human being could endure. He's thinking about his disciples. He's praying to the Father for his disciples. That right there is the model of prayer that we should strive for. That's the Christ model, putting others before self. How much do we thank people who bestow gifts upon us? Small things like we talked about. Now compare that to how thankful, how genuinely thankful we are to God for the things that he's done for us. For bringing us out of that Egypt, right? Our own personal Egypt as the days of unleavened bread demonstrated to us. Another way that we can be a community that is committed to Christ is by, by our work of faith, hope, and love. Well, as First Thessalonians reads it, it's faith, love, and hope. Faith, love, and hope. And all three of those things, we know that they're all throughout the scriptures. Right? First Corinthians, the 13th chapter, one of the famous chapters of the Bible talks about faith, hope, and love. But there's other places as well. And it's interesting because if we think about it, all three of these, they have something that go along with it. Okay? You can't just have faith and say, I have faith, but eventually if it's real genuine faith, that it's going to be demonstrated in some works. And we know that that is not a dirty word in Christianity. It's something that is biblical. Of course, misunderstanding works is something that's not biblical, and Paul addresses that. But even Paul himself, I know he wrote Romans, he wrote Galatians, and many people point to that, and it makes them feel like, oh, you can't say anything about works. Christianity is not about works. Well, no, it's not about works, about what you've done so you can merit something, so you can earn something, because you can't. And we understand that, but Paul is saying that genuine faith is going to produce works. Genuine faith is not going to have an ability not to produce works. And works can be many different things. Works can be many different things. It can be, it can be you know, led to where you're financially helping somebody. Works can be where you're, you know, like we have many people here that they have a faith and they, they want to help, they want to contribute. They have a faith that makes them want to stand up to evils that come towards them to be an example, to be a standard for Christ on earth. There's a multitude of things that we can think about when we talk about works. But it's a natural part of the Christian journey. He also talks about love. Labor of love. Labor, very closely associated with the idea of works. Labor of love. By our work of faith, by our labor of love, and better, by our steadfast hope. We think about that, love is a very important part. We know love is one of the key ingredients to all of this. Do you think it's a labor of love when God's working in us? Or do you think that he just feels, ah, oh, just I started this work, I started this conversion, you know, I called this person out, but man, they're really might kind of be regretting it now. If I can understand you know, in some ways, I wouldn't blame God if he kind of regretted trying to work with me uh, because this message is probably more for me than anybody in here. But I'm telling you right now, if we think about that, the labor of love that God has demonstrated to us is the same labor of love that we should have with each other, that we should long suffer each other, that we should, and this is all linked together, we talk about prayer, we talk about thankfulness, we talk about genuinely caring for people and genuinely looking out for people. And we see that Paul, Silas, and Timothy is a great example of this. 
and it's driven by their faith in Christ. And their faith in Christ is a reality because of the love of Christ and the Father. And that love should permeate through us and be extended to all those in the church as well as people outside of the church. Of course, Christ wants us to show the love of God to the world as well. And so, work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope, or the endurance of hope, the endurance of hope. Loyalty to Christ in the face of severe persecution. We did a study on this last year, right? On the, on the path to Pentecost. And we talked about love. We talked about faith. We talked about hope. We talked about prayer. We talked about wisdom. We talked about power. And we talked about all those aspects. And all those are key things that are intertwined together. They build upon each other. These are the building blocks that create the new creature in us that new creature that's in Christ, right? And so we think about what hope is. Hope is not something that we have as far as that, or hope is, we don't hope in something that we, we, we possess right now. Hope is about something that we haven't possessed yet. Hope is something that we know that in the future that God's going to bless us with these things because His Word is sure. And based upon our faith, we have a hope in Jesus Christ returning. Based upon our faith, we have a hope that Christ is going to reign on this earth and is going to bring us with Him and that we are going to abide with Him and the Father for eternity. That's what this letter in a lot of ways is all about. It's about hope. It's about a persevering hope. A hope that keeps on keeping on. Despite the persecution, despite the trials and and we all know that we don't live in the first century, and we have a lot of different things that we go through. Most of us probably haven't been persecuted because we believe in Jesus. I know I haven't. I might have been persecuted because I didn't align with a sense of orthodoxy that mainstream Christianity likes to market and present, and that's okay. But it's not persecution where I'm fearing for my life, and I'll be honest with you. That hasn't happened to me. It might have has happened to you. I'm not discounting your experience, but I'm just going to be upfront and transparent. It's not part of my experience. But the trials and persecution sometimes they're not just physical. They're sometimes they're sometimes spiritual. You know, we go through periods of time where you know some you know our, our emotions are torn, or we're having issues socially, or in our in our marriage life, or with family, or with work colleagues. And sometimes, in a way, we can be going through things that aren't necessarily persecution where someone's directly persecuting us, but it is a trial because it's causing us problems in our life. It's stirring up issues and, and creating anxiety for us. Sometimes these things are beyond our control. They're medical. You might be diagnosed with some sort of uh, disease, some sort of sickness, physical or, or emotional or mental. And so we have real uh, trials that we go through in today's age. And I think what we can relate to the Thessal Thessalonians or Th Thessalonians as the video pronounced it in a lot of different ways. And it, just, it doesn't have to just be that we're running for our lives and we're worried that we're going to get stoned or brought to the government. Now the day may come we know it's in some ways it seems like it's headed that way where there's more and more intolerance for things that are you know, considered biblical in a lot of ways. But, at this point in time, because God is continuing to bless us and give us this freedom, and it all comes from God, we can thank our forefathers, we can be appreciative, but we know ultimately it's God. It's not them. It's God and His guiding hand in all the things that happen. And so, if we think about it, and I like this quote from Robert Thomas. This is on page 1646 in the Expositor's Bible Commentary. It says, Endurance enables one to cope with the trials it encounters in living for Jesus Christ. It accepts the seemingly dreary, blind alleys of Christian experience with a spirit of persistent zeal. It rules out discouragement and goes forward, no matter how hopeless, humanly speaking, the situation. Steadfast hope. Persevering hope. Not just that, oh, I have hope because I know what's going to happen. 
but you have resistance to have that hope while you're having that hope. You're going through things, difficult things, deaths of loved ones. It's persistent while you are experiencing resistance, emotional resistance, social resistance, physical resistance. Steadfast hope. My second main point is be a community empowered by the Holy Spirit. One of the things that we see in Paul's letter here is that he says that the gospel came to you not in mere words of humans, not in mere words of man, not craftiness. He doesn't say crafty, but in other letters, but it's the same sentiment, it's the same idea. Not because we were just such great speakers. It wasn't our own talents, it wasn't our own skills, but because of the power of the Holy Spirit and full conviction. The Thessalonians looked at Paul and Silas and said, these men, these men are of God. Look at their conviction. And Paul tells us that. He says, what manner we were among you. How we spoke with the power of the Holy Spirit. That right there is powerful because it shows us a couple things. Number one, it shows us that that same power, that that same zeal of the Holy Spirit, that that same conviction rubbed off onto the Thessalonians. They captured that, that zeal. Another thing that's interesting when we read the scriptures is that this seems to be, in some ways, the New Testament model. So we're right now in the past, you know, I, I think that last year we did a lot more, but we all know, I don't have to say it, but I'm going to say it. We're in the Count of Pentecost now, right? Since last Sunday, okay? The day, the day after the first day of unleavened bread, the Count of Pentecost. And so we're in that little intervening period where we're thinking about the coming of the Holy Spirit and the anniversary of God giving that Spirit and beginning His church on this earth. And so when we read about how this happened, what we see is this really interesting model about how Christianity began. Because in a lot of ways, historians probably look at this and say, how in the world did Christianity become this small, little, minute group to this huge explosion? Of course, we know the Holy Spirit, God's doing. God was involved in it. There's nothing impossible for God. But when we look at the model that's presented to us in the book of Acts, we know that the day of Pentecost, what happens is the Holy Spirit comes. And on that day, that very day, we see an amazing transformation. Those same individuals, like Peter, John, and Matthew, all those people, all those men that fled Jesus, that denied Jesus when he was being arrested, that tried to disguise their voice in some ways because they knew that their accent would give away that they were a Galilean and a follower of this man that's being on trial. Those same men now are walking in to the temple and preaching Jesus. They're preaching Jesus. The conviction has taken place. The conviction has taken place. This right here is one of the most influential things, in my opinion, as I look at the New Testament. Obviously, the Holy Spirit's conviction of us, and as people see the genuine conviction of us, that's very, very powerful. I think it's one of the most powerful testimonies that we can have. Don't get me wrong. This right here is extremely important. This is God's instruction. And what I mean by this is that, you know, it, it, this right here, people can read and intellectually understand and intellectually be able to uh, read the, the words on the pages, but not necessarily believe, not have a conviction. It's the Holy Spirit that convicts us of what this says coupled with the real genuine conviction in the way we speak, and the way we act, and the way we interact with people in here, with people outside, that becomes the biggest influence where people know that this is real. I mean, think about that. Think about some of the, the bystanders there in the temple after the day of, of Pentecost. These men who fled Jesus that didn't want anything to do with him now are preaching Jesus and don't care about the dangers that it might cause them. They don't care about the, the, the ridicule it might cause them. They don't care about the things that it might happen, might result from them preaching Jesus. So being convicted in Christ 
through the Holy Spirit. That's what the key is. The key is the Holy Spirit. We can also, we can also be a community empowered by the Holy Spirit by bearing witness to the gospel. Now this goes hand in hand, right? Being convicted by the Holy Spirit is going to result not just in our conviction to ourselves. We're not just sitting here passively being convicted, but that conviction is going to eventually motivate us to bear witness to the gospel. Paul says in verses 6 to 8, he says this, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. This word sounded forth, it's got kind of a cultural part to it. It's kind of a, a word that's used. It's kind of like a, it's, it's a Greek word that you would use in, in some ways that it's a sound that would go forth and it would echo. It would echo. It was like a trumpet blast. Like a trumpet blast in one spot. And you still hear it continuing on far away as the echo travels. Or like a car alarm going off in the parking lot and the sound coming into a church congregation or church auditorium. I'm sorry, I just had to say that. <laughs> this right here, the Thessalonians, their belief, their faith in Christ... The way that they turn from idols to the living God, and we're going to get to that, sounded forth. It's interesting because it's the, another little historical tidbit for, for, for Thessalonica or Thessalonica uh, is that where it's located is in Greece, and it's right there on a harbor that connects to the Aegean Sea. I don't have maps with me, I wished, wished I did. But it's also connected to this thing called the Ignatius Way. It's a road. And this Ignatius Way would link kind of the old world, the new world, or, well, the, the, that's not true. I kind of got mixed up in my word. The new world would be considered the Americas. But like the, the, the east and the west, the eastern part of the Roman Empire to the western part of the Roman Empire. And so that was really key to Thessalonia, to Thessalonica. Because in these days, you know, they didn't have these cell phones with social media on it where you could make, tag a video, make it go viral. They didn't have news outlets. They didn't have ways to stream audio and things like that as obvious. But the primary ways that things would travel was through trade routes. Because what would happen is, is that you'd have someone who's a trader trading some goods. They'd hear, you know, be somewhere for a little while and then they're going to the next city. And so those trade routes were really important. In Thessalonica, it was right there, and just to let you know, it was the capital of the Roman Empire in the province of, of Greece. And so, or province of Macedonia. So Roman Empire, Rome's the capital, but they would make capitals in the different regions. So the capital of the region of Macedonia, the primary city in Macedonia for the Roman Empire was Thessalonica. And a lot of that had to do with because that Ignatius Way that ran right through there. And it was also connected to the sea. And so because of that, it was like a fertile ground to spread the gospel to because that gospel would go forth more easily because it had so many uh, routes out. And people, it, it had a lot of pass, passerbys, both by road as well as by sea. And so this is what we see right here, is that it sounded forth. What enabled this for the Thessalonians? Of course, it was the power of the Holy Spirit. The power of the Holy Spirit, the conviction of Paul and Silas, as well as Timothy, as Timothy goes and gets a report from them. Going through, obviously converting the, the Thessalonians, the ones who believed, it was very, very influential. That influence, Christ's and God the Father's power, the Holy Spirit's power, is powerful enough to emanate from us to other people. Now, we obviously know that we are not the ones that people follow. Right? I mean, we're, we're not the ones that, you know, we're, we don't have a church structure where we have a man that we're looking to or a person that we're following. 
We know that that's went on from the beginning of Christianity. Paul himself had to deal with that. In 1 Corinthians, he talks about, I'm a Paul, I'm a Paul. That issue of people deciding, you know, <laughs> you know, basically a badge of honor because they were following after some evangel- evangelist. But what we do know is, is that the model that Christ has given us, the model that God has given us, the model that God has given us is he wants us to be fishers of men, fishers of men and women, fishers of humans. And so as we, as older brethren, as older believers, we bring in new, sometimes in a way, we're kind of mentors sometimes to the younger ones. And that's kind of the model. That's the natural model. It's an interesting little picture I saw. I don't know who sent it to me. Someone here might have sent it to me. But it said, it was a dad. It was for dads, and it could be for, for, for mothers as well. But it said, a, a dad says to his son, watch your steps. Be careful, watch your steps. And the son looked at the dad and said, you watch your steps. Because I follow after yours. Now obviously none of us believe that we are getting believers and getting, trying to go out and get people to follow us. But as Christians, naturally, you will have young Christians that will look to you as someone older in the faith for guidance sometimes. And I think that that's an important thing for all of us to remember. That we have new brethren sometimes, we have younger brethren sometimes that are coming up, even if they've been here their whole life, that are watching us that have been in the faith a little longer. And me as well. There's people older than me. I mean, it never stops, right? Okay, you can be 30, 40, 50 years old, and we still have the people in the faith that we kind of look up to. Our elders. And I'm not saying elders as far as the ordained. I mean, I'm talking about all the elders, the ones that have been in the faith, the ones that have really went through this life and have some experiences. And we grow from their experiences too because they share them with us. Does anybody else feel edified sometimes about hearing about people's experiences, specifically their faith, their journey in this Christian walk? Because they're all different, right? I love hearing stories. I love hearing stories about the church. I love hearing stories about people's faith and things that they went through. Those can be very beneficial. So looking back at this passage, looking back at what Paul says, that we came to you in full conviction, the power of the Holy Spirit, and we see the results was the Thessalonians, they latched on to that. That that was a part of what God used in order to draw the Thessalonians to Christ. So be careful. We have to bear the gospel Sometimes we're also just bearing the gospel to our young brethren. Last little point for the day. Be a community that is differentiated from other religions. Be a community that is differentiated from other religions. Let's read that last little part, 9 and 10 of 1 Thessalonians. 9 and 10 of the first chapter here. Paul says this. He says this, that the, the things... That's, you know, what's sounding forth is, is the Thessalonians' faith. And Paul says this in verse 9, For they themselves declare concerning us what manner of entry we had to you, and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God, and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. And that right there is the enduring hope. That is the persevering hope that we have, that we are awaiting the risen Savior, Jesus Christ, to return. Now, all of us had idols that we left. You know, it's real easy. We, we talk about this all the time. You know, the Old Testament's full of idols. The New Testament's full of idols. There's probably just as much idolatry worship in the Bible. I don't mean, obviously, it's not being promoted, but it's being descriptive, not prescriptive. There's probably just as much idolatry in the Bible than we probably get in actually idolatrous religions. Because God understands how easy it is for humans to fall to idolatry. And I don't think it's changed today. You know, the Old Testament often talks about the the words, idols, often talks about them as being vain things. Why are they vain? Vain because they're useless. They're man-made. There's no life in idols. They don't have any real power to do anything. They don't have power to grant prayers. They don't have power to, to, to change or transform anybody. 
They're just vain and useless. And so sometimes when we think about other religions, we can also think about the major religions, the religions that are outside of Christianity, right? Or we can kind of fall into that trap of thinking, oh, you know, the Christianity of the, of the world, mainstream Christianity. But I think that we need to think about something that's real in our 21st century setting, and I think it's always been real, and that is the religion of self, which is real subtle and can happen anywhere. It can happen to anybody if they're not careful. You know, oftentimes these Greeks, these Romans, these pagans, what do they do? They worship their gods for the purpose of getting what they wanted. It wasn't about love to, towards the gods. It was about appeasing the gods so they wouldn't be destroyed or so that they could get the blessings that they wanted. It was a way of getting something they wanted. And so in our life, in our day, can we think of sometimes idolatry can kind of permeate in our lives in the form of idolatry of self? idolatry of mindset. Sometimes we're thinking and we're living a life where really our self is at the forefront of everything. That we're trying to appease people so you can get something. You're trying to do this so you can gain this. The religion of materialism. Think about that. Think about how materialistic our world is. About how we want. About how that's a large portion of what this world's all about. It's how much we can get the religion, the idolatry of materialism, the idolatry of today in the 21st century. We probably think about things other than that, but I think that's something that we should sometimes think about. Self-interest. One of the key things as I wrap up in this, I believe, is that Paul tells us that he turned or they turned from idols to the true and living God, the true God. Now, living is specific, right? It means something's alive. And there's only one that's a living God, and that's the God that we serve, the God of this Bible, okay? And so if we think about that, that's the key right there. We'll never grow by following after things that can't make us grow. We'll never be transformed by following after things that can't transform us. Only the living God can do that. And that's the God that we serve. And that's what's so important for us to understand, I think. That's what's so important. Key to this is the living God who provides us with this ability. If we are serving the living God and not the idol of self, we inevitably will be different than other religions because the living God is just that. A God who is transforming us into the image of His Son. Jesus came to this earth and it was noticeably different than what people experienced. He stuck out like a sore thumb. Obviously in a good way. Now, did he do stuff that was on his own accord? Of course not. He did stuff that was in line with the true precepts that we have in here. But those true precepts in a lot of ways had kind of, you know, went away in a lot of people's minds. And so serving the true and living God is going to make us different. And different in a good way. And sometimes different in ways that might make things uncomfortable sometimes. Because we have to stand up to unrighteousness. We have to stand up to things that are unjust. We can't just go with the flow. And so the last little part of by serving only the living God. Or excuse me. That last point. Be a community that is differentiated from other religions. By serving the living and true God as we just went over. And also by a hope in Christ's return. By a hope in Christ's return. The days of unleavened bread. We just went through it. All the holy days point to this. But one of the things that highlights or is highlighted in the days of unleavened bread is this. That Christ is our Passover and God spared us. That we deserve the wrath of God just like the firstborn of Egypt experience the wrath of God. But through the blood of Christ, we didn't have to experience that. That wrath, that condemnation has been removed. It's been passed over by the blood of the Lamb. And so now we can look forward to a hope. A hope that our sins are forgiven, as we know they are, and they are continually forgiven as we repent. And a hope in Jesus Christ's return when He comes back. 
So this is the first message of Persevering Hope. Uh, this one's going to be a little different than probably the other ones. My plan is, just to kind of give you a little, uh, uh, well, we'll just have to see, but my plan is and my hope is to make this a little bit more interactive. Uh, and what I mean by that is maybe provide you with a, a handout as well as uh, some questions where you're a little bit more involved. You're welcome to be more involved. And so that's something that I've kind of been moved to do. I think that the path to Pentecost uh, really was a success. I'm not saying that's what we're going to do with this study per se, the same thing, but the idea of trying to get a little bit more interaction because all of us have God's spirit. And you have a lot to contribute. You have an experience, and all of us can learn from each other. And so with that, I hope that we'll just continue to look at those three things that we looked at today. Okay? That we strive to be a community that is committed to Christ. That we strive to be a community that is empowered by the Holy Spirit. And that we strive to be a community that is differentiated from other religions.